This is I'm Really Rich, Forbes on Trump, on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. Welcome to the show. In each episode, we're going to dive into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters and editors. We'll look at his wealth, his business associates, and his effect on the economy and business segments around the country. What did he tell us back when he was in the throes of bankruptcy? What do his business deals of the past tell us about his governing today? There is perhaps no one better suited to answer these questions than Forbes magazine editor Randall Lane. He oversaw our latest issue, our billionaire's issue, which focuses on Trump. In 2015, Randall wrote the cover story on then-candidate Trump. Randall, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Billionaire's Day. Happy Billionaire's Day. So we have over 20 pages of Trump world happening in the magazine. Tell me about them. Well, yeah, we're, we're, this is, as the president might say, a huge issue for us. Uh, we always, you know, we are the definitive arbiters of wealth. Uh, this is our 30th anniversary of doing Billionaire's, and we've been doing the Fort 400 since 1982. Donald Trump, of course, was on the very first Forbes 400, so we've been charting his personal wealth for 35 years. And this year, we thought, since we've been co- covering the global world's global billionaires for three decades, what better uh, theme this year than to take a look at every single one of the president's foreign partners, half dozen of which are billionaires, and the rest, most of the rest are in the centimillionaire range. So there's huge money there. And so we have individual profiles of every single current, recent, and maybe even future partner that uh, Donald Trump has. Now, you edited much of this, and we'll be talking to some of the writers, but of all of these pages, do you have a favorite? Is there something that really jumps out at you as you didn't know before we started this issue and now? They're all profiled, but we did two especially deep dives into, um, one is into a guy named Phil Ruffin, who's a billionaire out in Las Vegas, who is the president's partner or the Trump organization now in Las Vegas. Uh, and he was just so candid. He's got the kind of, um, you know, when you're over 80 years old and you got all the money, you know, you need. I mean, he was just very just upfront about what he wants to do and plans. And, you know, all these partners have just won a lottery ticket in that they just happen to be real estate partners or licensees for most for most of them with somebody who now is the most famous and most controversial person in the world. So it, the larger question we asked is, what do you do when your business partner or your brand, really, because that's what they're licensing, suddenly is incredibly hot, so to speak? And it could be hot in a good way or hot in a bad way, but how do you exploit it? I mean, you would be literally a terrible business person if you did not say, well, I cut this deal five years ago when this you know, they were just another luxury real estate brand. If you're not looking at this and saying, wow, this is a big opportunity, then you should forfeit your, you know, your billionairehood. <laughs> and so that's that's the theme of the issue. How are each of the partners taking this either windfall or this there's also pitfalls too and what are they doing? So Phil Ruffin told us that he wants to develop a Trump casino and has actually talked to the president about that and that's news. And given especially uh, Donald Trump's history in Atlantic City, the idea of a Vegas Trump casino, there's already a tower there that he has his name on to actually go back in the casino business. It's fascinating the Trump organization confirmed that they're having talks on that. So that's big. Uh, and then my other favorite story in terms of the depth is um, we do a story on a guy named Harry Tanneau, who is uh, Tanneau is a shorter version of his name, which is very, very long. Uh, he's a billionaire in, in Indonesia. He has a Trump license in Indonesia. And he is, of all these licensees, the most, he is the mini Trump. He's a Trump clone. Everything he does, the way he talks, everything is big, flashy, the best, gold. And he's even now told us that he intends to, he's now getting into politics, he intends to be president of Indonesia, the world's fourth most populous country, within 10 years. And he's very serious, and people in Indonesia are taking that very seriously. So that's also news, because he's kind of hedged around that. But to, to Abe Brown, the reporter, he finally just you know, had some candid moments where he's like, yeah, I will, I, I will be president within 10 years. Uh, that's a big deal. It's not a, it, that's no longer kind of a joke. Uh, I don't think people can take statements like that unseriously, maybe the way they might have a couple of years ago when some rich, you know, flashy tycoon says, I'll be president. So you have one casino, you have one aspiring president. Of the other business partners that we look at in this issue, is there a broader conclusion you can draw about what they're doing to enhance their wealth? Absolutely. The broader conclusion is every single one of them, and you know, we had our reporters there in, in Washington for the inauguration, 
And there were more than a dozen of the partners came to Washington for the inauguration. They were all meeting with each other and, and, and talking because all of them realized that their business just changed. In November, their business changed in an enormous way. It was already changing, even with the campaign, you know, especially with, for partners in Muslim countries. But now that he's president, they were all looking at each other like, wow, this is a real game changer for our business. What were the pitfalls that you're seeing among these business I partners? I think they just, that they're lashed their brand because all of them license the trump brand that, that's basically you know there's there's management there's expertise but really what they were paying for is the trump brand so now they've lashed themselves to somebody who can change the the trump brand with one tweet on a saturday morning and so there the pitfall is you don't know what the president is going to do or say on any given day and so your brand is now on a roller coaster Overall, I think most of these licensees realize they have a huge opportunity, but there's risk, too. That's why it's a very compelling business story. It's interesting, too, because he's always seen himself as a businessman. And I think even into the first few weeks in the Oval Office, he was struggling with the idea of being a politician. In his first press conference, he said something to the effect of, oh, I, I guess I'm a politician now. So it's <laughs> a, a different way to for him to think and for his, his partners well, to think. Well, especially when you're 70 years old. I mean, that's baked in there. He has five-plus decades or five decades or so where... He's been doing the same thing for five decades, and he's used to people talk about Donald Trump and his big empire. It's you know again, it's a you know, and we lay it out even in a map. You can kind of see where all the projects are and where all the partnerships are. We have it all in the issue, but you know it was a very decentralized organization when he was running it, and he had a small core around him. You're seeing him replicate that with how he manages the Oval Office. Um, but it's not like he had tens of thousands of people. He had tens of thousands of people working on his projects, but that didn't mean he was managing them. And so that's, you know, it's very interesting to watch. He has a huge, huge transition to make, and we're just in the infancy of that. Well, let's go back to the beginning. And we kind of chart the beginning of Forbes's history with Trump in your 2015 cover story with him. Uh, we talk about the very first Forbes 400 and what he was saying even then when we said, hey, we estimate your net worth to be this, and he shot back with right. something higher. Right. We On the very first, 1982, first time Forbes or anybody had ever attempted to kind of quantify who owns what in the world, or America in that case. Uh, so it was a mammoth project, a historic project, and that very there's Donald Trump on the very first list, listed with his father, Fred Trump, collectively at $200 million, of which Donald says $500 million. So when we were working on that story, uh, as I'm sure you recall, we actually went back to the people working in the 1980s on the file, and they had what they called the Trump rule, which is take whatever Donald says and divide by three, and you get his real network. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, that's even... That even held last year when, you know, we sat down with, with then candidate Donald Trump, and he was like, "I'm worth 10 billion. I'm worth 11 billion. I'm worth 12 billion." So I have a total net worth, and now with the increase, it'll be well over 10 billion dollars. We have him right now at about three high threes. We have him at 3.5. So, the Trump rule still holds. Take Trump, divide by three, and you're good. So, of all the decades that we've been tracking him, what is what does that tell us about the way he's behaving in office, the, the policies he's putting out? What, what do you think Forbes knows because of our long history interacting? A couple of things. One, he's very consistent. Uh, the fact that you can go back 35 years and he's still, you know, exaggerating or promoting you know, how big, how, you know, it's like that's, he was, that's his 35, he was 35 years old. It was a half, you know, half a lifetime ago for him. And he was, you know, he's a young-ish adult, and he was still the same as he is now, which is, it's not enough. We say $200 million. You're on the first list. And again, what's also interesting about that list is because nobody had ever done it before, very few of the 400 talked to us. Most of them were, were like, oh, my, you can't print how much I'm worth. That Nobody's allowed to do that. It's like, well, it's public filing, or you own half of X city, so the public has a right to know. It, but it, was, a, it was a new concept. Now it's accepted, and... The large majority of the people on these lists talk to us and cooperate and try to make it as accurate as possible and or spin us in whichever direction but they engage with us. Back then, everybody was just running for the hills. Donald Trump, even then, not only would he, not only did he engage with us, but he kept on talking higher, higher, higher. And 
uh, and he's been incredibly consistent all the way through. Even when in 1990 we famously called him out for going bank, or but you know that he was in real trouble, and we thought said thought his net worth was near zero, and he subsequently filed for for corporate bankruptcy, or his, his organization did, and uh, and then you know in the in the story uh, 18 months ago he was like. He was like, well, you know, I was okay when you guys, you guys were even high on me. You were too high, and, and you did the right thing. And, and I pointed out, well, actually, you told us we were, you took out a, he wrote an op-ed telling us we were out to get him. Forbes was out to get me. And I, and I called him on that. I said, but he said, I didn't complain when you said that. You were right. And he said, well, you did complain, actually. He goes, oh, whatever. That was actually his answer. Oh, whatever. So that's, anybody who's been watching the last few weeks of the Trump presidency, it's very similar to what we've been experiencing for 35 years. It's par for the course. Yes. You also have a line, I think it might be my favorite line in the story because it comes from our archives in which we cite a, a meeting with now President Trump at New York's Gotham Bar and Grill. And uh, a note in his file from that meeting says, for the record, he regards the 400 as something of a Bible and yeah. is convinced others do too. Yep. How how incisive is that comment to you? And that's a 20-year-old note in a file that was never meant really to go public because it was, it's, it's an authentic note. And, the um, you know, again, we have these decades of files, which now are a treasure trove, given how important the president is, obviously, to the world. And so uh, I think it's incredibly insight, insightful because he considers perception incredibly important. Uh, and always has. And so if you look at how he lashes out and you look at his presidency so far, if you look at when he's really kind of kind of had these volcanic eruptions, it's really because you could see it's how he's being perceived. He sees something on the news and he doesn't like how he's being perceived. He's mad at the media because he doesn't like how he's being perceived. He lives uh, in a world where the perception of Donald Trump is what matters most to Donald Trump. And that, but that note Indicated, and that even that comment to us in 1982, and even the hours and hours I spent with him a year and a half ago, where it was all about what is somebody going to say I'm worth, or and that this is very important to him because how others measure him is a very important uh, indicator for him. Where there, you know, a lot of people could give a hoot about you know what others think about them, especially on our billionaires list. You've got a lot of people who are like, I don't care what anybody says, I'm doing what I do and I don't care what anybody thinks about me and this guy cares a lot about what others think about him and I think we're seeing that play out in uh, in the world now. You had another moment with him, a very behind the scenes exclusive moment on a, a balcony at Trump Tower when the Pope was in town and crowds were gathering below your feet and, and tell us what Trump... Yes, I I, <laughs> I saw, you know, that now in retrospect that's a, it's a little... You know, it's a funny statement, but I was with the president watching the Pope uh, <laughs> on Fifth Avenue from Trump Tower. Uh, at the, it was just I happened to be with him. The Pope was in New York, Pope Francis, for his first visit to New York. So they parked the car. He's going to give mass at St. Patrick's, and so he's going to do a ten-block procession. And the Pope is idling literally outside Trump Tower, and so we hear just you know the whole the whole city's electric and everyone's like oh, the pope is coming the pope's on his way and you, you have thousands of people lined outside and so um so donald he goes to me he goes you want to see the pope randall you want to see the pope i'm like yeah i want to see the pope i mean this, you know i thought this candidacy wouldn't last long but i always remember the day i saw the pope i've never seen the pope before so <laughs> we you know i didn't think anything of that what i was doing with trump i was excited to see the pope and uh, to, to be fair uh, Trump himself seemed genuinely like you know, like a little schoolboy. We ran down the elevator. We run. He, he had this fourth floor and has this fourth floor balcony in Trump Tower where his campaign office was, and it was empty. There's nobody. This is a September t 2015, and there's nobody in his campaign office. He. That's when you open. And you realize this guy is punking the whole world because he's running this campaign completely, just calling the TV shows and just driving the news without any of the infrastructure. Everybody else has armies and volunteers, and there's nothing in there. There, it's just a bunch of posters and a stack. There, there, there aren't even empty tables and chairs. There's nothing there except for Corey Lewandowski who was sitting there in his office, and you had this. You could have played hockey, and, and there literally it was just a blank field. So we run out, and there's a balcony next to Corey's office. And we pop out, 
again, we're looking out, and he's telling me, well, isn't this the best view? And, you know, Trump Tower is the best. I'm like, yes, Trump Tower is the best. Look at this. This is great. And, um, and then we hear this noise, this, gir- you know, this strange noise, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. And I realize they're all, all the people are looking up at us, and they're making this sh- very strange noise. And so I'm kind of like realizing that they're booing us. And I turned to, and, and you forget, because again, you spend enough time with anybody, even Donald Trump, you, you know, you forget how famous he is. Because, you know, when he's actually quite charming in person uh, on a one-on-one basis, I think that's a lot of the secret of his success. And so you, you realize, oh, they're booing Donald Trump who's sitting next to me. And, I t- uh, you know, he turns to me. And he goes, he goes, Randall, he goes, Randall, he goes, 90%, 90% approval, 90% of them love me. Because any politician, they would love that. They would love that. And I'm like, what? 90%? And <laughs> thankfully, I taped, I taped this. And he, yeah, he knew I had the tape you know, going the whole time because we were talking. And I went back, and I'm so shocked. And I, I went back, and I listened. And no, there's no way. 90% were not cheering him. Uh, more like 90% were booing him. Maybe you can make a case 60% were booing him if you want to be generous. But a majority were booing him. But to him, he turns to me immediately and goes, 90% cheers. And so the big question for me that I raised in the article is, well, did he just reflexively lie to me? Or does he hear the cheers? Did he hear cheers? I think maybe, I'm starting to think maybe it's the latter. Uh, but I don't know. That's, a, that's, a, that's the riddle. I think you solved that riddle and you solved Donald Trump. Just to circle back to the billionaires issue, we have a lot of great stories in the in the issue. But of the billionaires that we look at, of the Trump business partners we look at, who are you most excited to watch over the next uh, 12 to 18 months? Who should we have our eye on? In terms of billionaires or Trump billionaires or any billionaire? Of the billionaires we feature in the issue. I, I know there's, a, a like I said, a 20-plus page spread of, yes. of different profiles. So of, of the people in these stories who... Who will you have your eye on? Again, you realize he's in so many different countries and he has so many different partners. But Phil Ruffin in Vegas is a very ambitious guy. And uh, he is, the, you know, he he said he talked to the president about, you know, trying to encourage him to put a high-speed rail, which seems a little kind of a questionable, you know, in terms of ethics, whether or not that's kosher or not. But that's, again, that's the inherent problem when you have, uh, president who has holdings. That's why blind trusts are supposed to exist and have existed forever because, you know, th- even though the president has put his assets in a trust, it's a revocable trust, his kids are managing it, he knows at some point, presumably, he'll get these assets back. And so, you know, it's interesting. But, but Phil, Phil Ruffin is a true American great success story. He's a born kind of grocery store owner's son in Wichita, Kansas. And you know, he's got, this is a guy who's bought low and sold high several different times, and he's always, a lot of the key to success for him has been how do you take a government policy or regulation and can you, how do you, you know, I don't want to say exploit it because uh, nothing he's done has ever been illegal, but you maximize it, you take advantage of a new rule and look for loopholes and look for a way in. He got his big start uh, in Wichita when he started his own grocery chain, and they had a rule in Kansas no supermarkets under more than 1,200 feet could sell could be open on Sundays for blue laws, and so he had an 1,100-foot store, and that basically had a monopoly on groceries and in, in, in Wichita, and that that's kind of who he is. And now, even you know, he's in a very highly regulated industry, the gambling industry, and as well as real estate. And so, you, in this story, you could see him really see, wow, this is a cool opportunity. You know, he's 80, I think 82, 83. He's not going to be around forever. He wants to make it happen now. And, you know, the idea of a Trump casino in Las Vegas, boy, that would be, just from a business story point of view, fascinating. I mean, just crazy. I mean, amazing. So let's see if that, how, if that gets off the ground. Indeed. We will keep an eye on that. Randall, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So that was Randall Lane, editor of Forbes, talking about our billionaires issue as a whole. Here now to talk about the cover story that Randall referenced is Abe Brown. He's an associate editor at Forbes, and he just traveled all the way to Indonesia to meet their version of Trump. Abe, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you traveled, I I think, if I'm going to get this right, 28 straight hours to get to Indonesia and meet Hari Tenosobdijo, 
who is a billionaire. Yes, and we can just call him Hari, since that is how he's referred to in the Indonesian press. The Hari or just Hari? He's just Hari. <laughs> Before we dive too deep into your reporting story, because it is fascinating and involves a very fancy meal that makes me hungry every time I hear about it, uh, tell me exactly how much is Hari worth and how did he come into his fortune? So he's worth $1.1 billion by Forbes' careful estimation, which will buy you a lot of Wagyu beef. Um, mm-hmm. And he built it first as a brokerage business, which, and then in the Asian financial crisis, he switched to buying companies because everything was broken and on the cheap, and he could buy a lot of very inexpensive companies and build them up. And then a lot of what he bought was uh, media assets. So now he runs a media empire, which are televisions, newspapers, um, radio stations, and from there, he is now expanding into real estate. And uh, so the, re- the real estate part of his dream that involved the, involved the Trumps. Uh, the Trumps are partnering with him on two different resorts, uh, one in Bali and one outside of Jakarta. So reading this story, it struck me the sheer number of ways he's like Trump. Um, he's on his phone constantly. He tweets. Walk me through a day with him and all the ways that he reminds you of our 45th president. Well, we can start with the very beginning of his day, which is typically uh, about 4 to 5 a.m., which, like our 45th president, he doesn't really sleep much. Like our 45th president, he's absolutely glued to his phone at every possible second. Uh, he, he, his Twitter account, which goes out to more than a million followers, is constantly updated with pictures of him doing things and going places, and, you know, it's a running diary. Uh, in the further parallels are, you know, in his business. He runs a, a media and real estate empire in Indonesia. He's partnering with Donald Trump on luxury resorts in Indonesia. Uh, he stages beauty pageants and has a number of other smaller parallels to Donald Trump, including the fact that uh, he is a big proponent of hand sanitizer and always has a bottle or some wipes with him in, in, in the same way that uh, Donald Trump is known to be a bit of a germaphobe. Walk me through how you found him initially and what you found interesting about him and what merited a story in our billionaires issue. So you're right. I edited what we call our Indonesian rich list, which is a list of the 50 richest people in Indonesia. It runs in our Forbes Asia magazine every every year. And so I was familiar with Hari. I didn't know him quite as well as I now do. I've, you know, I had not eaten dinner at his home yet. And Eaten dinner with personalized menus, no less. Uh, dinner with personalized menus and Wagyu beef and white chocolate mousse and some of the most expensive wine that I've ever seen outside of a restaurant and, um, you know, a whole host of other rich amenities. But to answer your, to be more specific, we, we had identified Hari early as a potential uh, story for the billionaire's issue because of the way he resembled Trump to us. And he seemed like... A, he would be a, a captivating story, even with that. Um, and then he was coming to town to meet with the Trump sons in New York and then to go, to go to the inauguration. So I met him in New York, and then he agreed to see me in D.C. So I went to D.C., and I met him at the Trump International Hotel there, which is, um, I believe, a former post office that they've converted into the most gaudy temple to wealth that you can imagine in 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 dc you know there's a baroni shop i believe uh, you know magnums of of dom and and um and booth clicquot sit out on the bar it's a, it's a crazy place and while i was there talking to him on the eve of the inauguration he tells me that he's also been in touch with another trump partner whose name is hussein sajwani who is a partner with trump in dubai and when i came back to new york and i told Randall about that interaction between Sajwani and Hari, um, I think a light bulb went on in Randall's mind that the network of Trump was meeting. They're meeting now. They're forming friendships. It's really turning into a loose global fraternity of these business partners. And while they are not, as far as we know, doing actively doing any business with each other right now, they are forming the beginning of these relationships that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, you could see them getting together on a project with Trump in a new in another country that we haven't even thought about yet. And that is how the Hari story prompted us to expand the package 
in a and it actually turned it into a package. What went from being a story on Hari went to being a 25-page investigation on every single Trump partner. So Hari and Sichuani had not met before inauguration weekend. Do we know that? I don't bel- believe they had met beforehand. I am about 90% certain that they met at the inauguration. Uh, there's a great picture on, of course, Instagram of the two men in black tie on the day of the inauguration. And I believe there were 14 Trump partners who attended the inauguration. I believe it's 14. Global Trump partners. Global Trump partners. So he's the nexus for new deal making. Uh, Trump or Harry? Trump, well, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, of course, the, the sons insist right now that the that their father is out of the business. He, he is definitely, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there is a universe forming around him, um, and it and it will be very interesting to see whether these guys do deals with each other down the road. Um, you know, when I I also had a chance to meet Hussein uh, Sajwani in Dubai on my way home from this reporting trip. And, you know, he tells me, oh, he's very interested in America. He had a pass on a few projects um, recently, but he's, you know, he's looking at America as an opportunity to expand there. And, um, you know, Trump has vowed no new foreign deals, but what would the ethics be of a deal in America that involved a foreign business partner? Is that a foreign deal or is that a domestic deal? And, you know, as soon as Sajwani says that to me, you've, you've got to start wondering whether there's going to be um, you know, another Trump building, another Trump branded building in New York owned by Sajwani, but, you know, branded um, Trump. And is that a domestic deal or a foreign deal? I think that's above my pay grade to answer, but we'll... Both of ours. <laughs> so Sajwani seems to be looking at America for some deals. What about Hari? Is he focused on anything here or is he focused at home in Indonesia and growing his brand there? Well, as Hari himself will tell you, um, he is trying to do less in business now and he's trying to get into politics and that's really the other huge parallel between him and Trump is the fact that Hari has huge political aspirations and he he wants he depending on what instance you catch him in he will be more subtle or less subtle about it but it's pretty clear to me that he wants to be president of Indonesia and there's a there are a number of obstacles in his path the first is he is going to be running and has already started. He's already started his own political party, and he's already begun on this very brash, very anti-elite campaign um, you know, to promote his party. Um, he'll, he's going to run to a number of roadblocks. First, he's ethnically Chinese in a country that is 99% something else. He's Christian in a country that I believe is 90% uh, Muslim. And so those are his two major roadblocks. Can he... Uh, can he convince an electorate that tends to vote um, uh, either with their religion or much more on a nationalist, populist uh, bent? Um, but, you know, he has the media and he has the money to become a major player. That's what the political observers told me. And also, how is his name recognition? Because you kind of talk about how potentially one path would be to be a vice president for one president and then fund that campaign and then eventually become president? Like, Could he jump from where he is right now to president? So the next election in Indonesia is 2019, and political observers generally say that he does not have enough name recognition right now to run for president. And generally the theory that I heard that would be his most plausible route to the presidency in Indonesia would be to sign on as someone's vice president and uh, bankroll their campaign and you know get the vice presidency boost his name recognition, and then run for president. So he's worth $1.1 billion, a little less than Trump. Yes, a little less. But he thinks, he says to you, within 10 years, I think I'll run the country. Right, and in that, you know, the country he's referring to is Indonesia. And, um, yeah, he told me that in D.C. And, you know, that's one of the only times he was blunt about that. Uh, in other instances, he's very coy and says, oh, you know, if there's someone who I can find who I think will do a good job for the country, I'll support them which, you know, he's already getting a little politically savvy because he knows to say things like that. You know, and the the, the platform that he is espousing, it's, um, it's anti-free market capitalism, which, of course, is a strange, uh, it might seem like a strange thing for a billionaire to support. Um, he, you know, he, he wants, quote, a modified democracy, not like we have here in the United States, he says. Um, you know, he's, you know, he looks really to China as a, as a paradigm example of 
what an Asian country should do, and that's down to the government-controlled economy. There is a sense that Indonesia has never, never achieved what it could. Um, so this is, you know, make Indonesia great. It's not living up to its potential. Yes, and then that's what Hari will tell you. Um, you know, I think I read a statistic that only 1% of Indonesians have a university degree. Wow. Um, and that is, that's incredible when you start to think about it. Given the size of the population. Given the size of the population. It's 250 million, 260 million, something like that. That's an incredible amount of people. And, you know, the point that Hari made to me was, you know, we're still using cattle in the field to cultivate. Um, and get, you know, the cattle need to sleep at night. Like, you know, mm. that's how, that's where Indonesia is. Now, I know you spent the bulk of your time in Indonesia with Hari. Mm-hmm. What is your sense, if any, of how Indonesians feel about him? He has his media empire. He has these... Uh, you know, as far as I can tell, the average Indonesian right now does not really have an opinion, probably does not really know much or know him at all. Uh, the, the elites know him, and certainly the journalists who I spoke to over there know him. And the, the political observers and the experts know who he is. I'm unconvinced that he has immense name recognition among the the what he calls the lower people, which is you know the people that he's trying to uh, appeal to. And it's a, you know he's very clear about it. He says Donald Trump is doing things for the lower people. That's my focus here in Indonesia too. Well, this is for the first time the U.S. is uh, run by a, a successful businessman. Mm-hmm. It will be very interesting, and I think uh, under today's environment, with all the complexity, uh, we need a businessman to run a country. So the shows that are through his media network, like the Upside Down World, which shows a female breadwinner, haha, is that a comedy or a drama? Do we know? That's a drama. Okay. People watch it. Um, people watch Miss Indonesia, and it captures forty percent of Indonesia's primetime audience. But that audience doesn't necessarily know that it is Hari who's behind. What right, I, I I do not imagine. Um, so you're talking about the fact that his media company says it captures forty percent of Indonesia's prime time audience, which is incredible. That's that's something that's just completely unheard of here in America. Um, I'm I'm not totally convinced or convinced at all that um, the Indonesian viewer watching their television set can connect this television station to Hari. But if he's running a lot of political ads on his own TV stations, uh, you know, they may start to. Or if he uh, borrows from an American television program that launched Donald Trump to further prominence. Tell me about it. Are we going to get an Indonesian apprentice? Apprentice. Well, he brought up The Apprentice on two occasions to me. He's obviously kind of fascinated by the fact that um, it's a starring role. Uh, it's, it's a starring, it was a starring role for Donald and, you know, obviously, I think there's a little bit of his ambition and ego that would like him to, you know, he, d- he, isn't, he isn't the on-camera star of any of his shows right now. And I think there's a little bit of his ego that would be tickled by that. And so when I was with him, I, and this is over our incredibly elaborate family dinner, which um, I'm in, I was invited to, and it's in his Jakarta mansion, which, which takes up an entire city block. It looks like Mar-a-Lago. It's this white, colonnaded, over-the-top, opulent mansion. And, you know, we're sitting and having dinner, and it's, you know, five courses of a pre-selected menu. And he, ha- and he brings up The Apprentice again. And I ask him, you know, if Donald had the, you know, had the catchphrase of, you're fired, what's your catchphrase going to be? And honestly, it takes him a matter of seconds to think of what he wants as his catchphrase, and it's, you're stupid. <laughs> So when he when he fires when he when he gets rid of a contestant, it's going to be you're stupid. Is the hand gesture going to go with it too? Do we know? Uh, I don't know about the hand <laughs> gesture. Wow, that, that's quite the tagline. Has he used that on people he's let go? Did you ask? <laughs> I have not asked him if he, uh, <laughs> if he if he really fires people with you're stupid. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Abe, thanks so much. Thank you, Maggie. Now, from the Forbes San Francisco Bureau, is staff writer Matt Drange. Matt focuses on power and money in Silicon Valley and has been monitoring how companies are responding to President Trump. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Broadly, how is Silicon Valley responding to Trump? From the East Coast, at least, it seems like a rather icy relationship, especially compared to some other industries. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's an icy relationship out here as well. I mean, um, 
you know, it's uh, I think it's important just for context sake um, to note that a lot of these companies out here in Silicon Valley um, publicly spoke out against Trump during the, you know, the campaign season leading up to the election pretty strongly, um, you know, not just with public statements, but with their wallets. I mean, the vast majority of, of campaign donations that went into the presidential election out here, at least, were to Hillary Clinton. Um, and it wasn't even close. I think it was some, probably like nine, you know, 90 percent, nine out of every ten dollars went to, to Clinton rather than Trump. Often when we talk about business, we talk about corporate taxes. And that is across all industries, right? Google pays a corporate tax just as Caterpillar pays a corporate tax. So why do you think Silicon Valley has been a little, I guess, frosty is the word I will keep coming back to uh, <laughs> towards towards our 45th president? I think one of the reasons why there's a lot of tension here is that President Trump's uh, stance on immigration and globalization, um, if you want to kind of intertwine those two things, run totally against uh, the core values of Silicon Valley, which is all about entrepreneurship, foreign-born founders. You see a a ton of founders who are not originally from here. And so, you know, when you have talk of, of literally building a wall and you have talk of uh, you know, reforming the H-1B program and uh, making it so that uh, foreign-born foreign born entrepreneurs will have a harder time uh, starting their companies here. Uh, I think it really puts off a lot of these um, a lot of these firms. the The main question I think that the companies out here have is whether Trump sort of is able to push through a version of his own corporate tax reform, or if it looks more like what the Republican Party has already put forward previously. If it looks like that, like the sort of more establishment reform, I think a lot of the companies will be happy with it because obviously it'll come with reduced corporate tax rate, which will be more competitive is the word that you generally hear out here with with other countries. So as far as taxes, I think they they get along and they sort of align pretty well. But as far as immigration, globalization, um, you know, there's social issues such as, you know, uh, LGBTQ restrooms, for example. A lot of companies have signed briefs opposing opposing laws on that. So I think on just about everything else, um, they don't see eye to eye, but taxes is, is probably one of the few areas where they do. I think perhaps because of the diverse workforces out in Silicon Valley is why you hear more out of those companies versus H&R Block recently came out. The CEO said, I, I think it'll be a tailwind for us on many levels. If there's healthcare reform, people are going to be confused and need H&R Block services. And beyond that, we'll benefit from the corporate tax reform. So he sounded bullish on all of the changes. But without knowing exactly how that employee base breaks down, I, I think there's a difference there compared to a Google, for instance. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think Silicon Valley has a lot of work to do when it comes to, um, you know, and this is according to the companies, the big companies themselves, when it comes to being more diverse. That said, I think they're still a lot more diverse, um, perhaps not in a gender breakdown so much as a a racial one than most of corporate America. Now, you mentioned the H-1B visa program, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit because that's a program, you wrote about this in February, and it's a program that was designed to give tech companies a way to hire skilled immigrants. Is that that right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and, And the idea behind the H-1B program was to sort of focus on the highly skilled, um, employees. So one of the issues, and we can dive into this more, is sort of like how do you define highly skilled and is what was highly skilled 20 years ago highly skilled today? And the answer in often often cases is no. Um, but yeah, originally it was geared at, at bringing high skilled employees to the U.S. and keeping those who came here to go to college um, so they could stay here and work. So what's going to happen to it or what do we think will happen to it? I know it's hard to have a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, as far as what we think is going to happen with H-1B, I think it's similar to tax reform in the sense that most people agree it's coming. Um, they're actually, I think they're both still alive. The last time I checked, there were um, two sort of competing um, bills, a Republican one and a Democratic one, making their way through Congress. And both of them would bring some pretty significant changes to the H-1B program. And the reason is that, you know, even before President Trump, just like with taxes, uh, there had been talk of reform for a long time. And the one thing that I think a lot of companies out here agree on as far as what that reform should look like and what we should expect is that it will focus on the sort of household name companies and kind of catering a bit more to them. So the Googles, the Facebooks, uh, you know, the Microsofts of the world, 
rather than the kind of um, the way a lot of people describe it to me is this almost seedy underbelly of the H-1B program, which is these outsourcing firms, many of them from India that sort of have more loosely defined, I think, roles on what high skilled means. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, phone uh, customer service or outsourcing in that way, things that you know, are not coding like you would you would see here in Silicon Valley or engineers, which out here is considered high skilled. And I think a lot of companies would like to keep it that way. So one thing I think we can expect is a more narrowly defined definition of just who is eligible for H-1B because that really hasn't been changed in, in a long time. That's really interesting. So is Apple less worried about this than some of the Indian-based companies that you referenced? Uh, yeah, I think the, the companies who are most concerned are the, the outsourcing firms. Many of them, you know, nobody has ever heard of here in Silicon Valley, but um, there are, I think, maybe between five and 10 companies or so that take up the bulk of the H-1B visas that are actually awarded. And the reason is that these outsourcing firms really flood the application process with a lot of applications. And, and the way it works is there's a cap on the number of H-1B visas that can be approved. It's uh, I think it's 65000 a year, and then with another additional 20000 who have a master's degree. But the government gets hundreds of thousands of applications, and so they have a lottery to sort of filter through all those applications and only give a set amount. And because these outsourcing firms are just applying in such high volume, the odds are, and the, what we've seen in recent years, is they get the lion's share of the H-1B visas. And so the Apples and Googles of the world, while they do use the program, I think they would all agree that they probably would like to use it more. So that's one thing that you'll probably see reform address. So let's turn our attention to the so-called travel ban. I know there's some discussion <laughs> as to whether or not we should call it a ban, but I, I think broadly speaking, we can call it the um, limitation on travel from Muslim-majority countries. The first version of this came out at the end of January and I think it's fair to say, produced a bit of an uproar around the country, but especially in Silicon Valley. And I believe I saw pictures of one of the Google co-founders at a protest at San Francisco International. Am I remembering that correctly? That's right. Yeah, that was uh, actually a couple of Forbes staffers, um, Ryan Mack and Matt King, uh, went to the airport that night. I think this was the day after the ban had been introduced. It was a Saturday night. And uh, yeah, Sergey Brin showed up and, and said, you know, he's he's there because he's he's an immigrant and he's an entrepreneur and, and he's there to support that cause or that protest. So that was the first version of this. And then the courts got involved and ultimately a second version of a travel ban has been has since been put out there. How is Silicon Valley reacting to version two? Yeah, I think Silicon Valley's reaction to version two is significantly more understated than it was the first time. You know, the when the first one came out as you mentioned, there were there were protests at the airport. It seemed like every tech CEO was in a rush to put out a statement uh, condemning the ban. And you had more and more companies, you know, issuing these statements. It, it became uh, so common that there were actually articles by media outlets, sort of like, here's a list of all of the tech companies that have opposed the ban. You know, it was very much uh, a popular thing to do out here. And then you have just recently, in early March, President Trump introduced a very scaled back version, I would say, of the ban. It eliminated one of the countries that was targeted in the first one. And most importantly, I would argue for Silicon Valley, it doesn't apply to people who are already here and have a, a work visa. It's really meant for um, making it more difficult for future uh, immigrants from a handful of countries to come. So. I think the reaction in general has been, you know, kind of pretty muted. Um, and then it's also probably worth pointing out that after the first ban was introduced in January, a lot of these companies had agreed, in principle at least, to sign a, a public letter that actually got drafted and there was some, some back and forth on that. And it would have essentially been a public letter to Trump condemning the ban and explaining why Silicon Valley uh, needs a, a steady source of immigrant workers, really, and how Silicon Valley runs on foreign-born entrepreneurs. That letter has since been shelved uh, with this sort of travel ban 2.0, if you will, and it doesn't appear, at least at this point, that it'll be revived. I think the companies, now that the, the ban has been scaled back and, and in their eyes isn't so egregious, uh, I think they've kind of taken the approach of, well, maybe we'll try to sort of work with the administration behind the scenes now. Uh, picking of the battles, if you will. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. The first one was almost a war. It felt like, you know, there were uh, protests, you know, Google employees actually walked out on the job. Um, the CEO of Google spoke at that walkout. Uh, you know, it was it was seemed like the only thing anybody was talking about in Silicon Valley for about a week, I would say. I mean, it was remarkable to watch from from New York City, where, where I am. I was following on Twitter and throughout the weekend and then into the week when the Google employees did their walkout. And it really... It was it was really interesting to just see the uproar. Uh, I, I came here to the U.S. at age uh, six with my family from the Soviet Union, uh, which was at that time, you know, the uh, the greatest enemy um, the U.S. had. Uh, maybe it still is in some form, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was a dire period period of the Cold War, and some of you probably. Uh, remember it, and it was under threat of nuclear annihilation. And yet, even then, uh, the U.S. had the courage to take me and my family in as refugees. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think in a lot of ways unified Silicon Valley in a way that you don't often see. You know, you had competitors signing on to front of the court briefs and you know, agreeing that this one thing was really bad for the group as a whole. And so it, it you know, I think the last time we saw that level of unity or, or being on the same page, if you will, was probably about a year ago um, in the Apple uh, DOJ encryption fight, which if you remember was over the, the San Bernardino shooting and an iPhone in that case, which the government ultimately was able to hack into, but for a couple months was involved in a pretty contentious legal battle with Apple over whether or not Apple should have to help it do that. And that was that was a case where, just like now with, with Trump and his immigration policies, a case where almost every big Silicon Valley company said, no, this is this is not good. And they, they spoke out against it. But I think those are pretty, pretty rare. And I also wanted to talk to you about a story that you did in February. And you wrote it around the time that the Nordstrom Ivanka scandal or kerfuffle, whatever you want to call it, was blowing up. So I, I fear that not as many people saw this story as they should have. But you talked about how tech firms are facing anti-discrimination lawsuits, and they might have an easier time with Trump's Department of Labor than they would have with an Obama or Clinton Department of Labor. Now, in the time since you have written this, uh, Trump's primary pick for Department of Labor head, uh, Andy Puzder, has removed his name from contention. And now we have Alexander Acosta, who's waiting to be confirmed. But what's going on with this? What do people need to know about these anti-discrimination lawsuits and how the administration will affect them? Yeah, so I think there's um, there's sort of two big things with the anti-discrimination stuff. So the first one, just by way of context, is that last year in 2016, um, you had a pretty significant change in the Department of Labor's approach to uh, enforcing discrimination laws in Silicon Valley. And what I mean by that is there were a lot more cases than you generally see. So just in the last, I think, six months of the year in 2016, you had um, three or four uh, high profile lawsuits that were filed by the government against um, <coughs> Google, uh, Oracle and Palantir, the, the data mining firm that was co-founded by Peter Thiel. Um, and, you know, those lawsuits are generally pretty, pretty rare. And certainly in that um, pretty tight amount of time, the employment law experts I talked to and lawyers all all agreed that that yeah this is a pretty aggressive Department of Labor. The issue now is that that aggressive behavior, really regardless of who comes in to run the department, is likely going to to take a dip. If nothing else, for what Trump has stated publicly, his views are on that, um, and and the people that he's hired in, in sort of similar or related positions. So what we'll probably see is you know less of a focus or less of a priority on anti-discrimination. And most folks I've talked to expect those three lawsuits I mentioned, the Google case, the Palantir one, and the um, Oracle one to be settled probably pretty soon, probably in the first half of this year. So you kind of see it as independent of whomever runs the Department of Labor. It's more, it's going to come from the, the very top. I think so. Um, but again, you know, that's that's based on on conversations with people at these companies and lawyers who suspect that. Obviously, we don't know if that's going to happen for certain, but the sort of impetus for that is Trump more so than Puzder. That said, I think Puzder, you know, probably a lot of people uh, thought maybe would be even more strongly against anti-discrimination issues than Trump would have been. So it's hard to say, but I think even without him, no matter who comes in to run that department, most people are expecting renewed focus on, you know, 
job growth and and things that don't have anything to do with anti-discrimination laws and what government contractors can and can't do, which doesn't seem to be a priority for for Trump so far. It will be interesting. I'm curious to watch the new, if Acosta is confirmed, I'm I'm curious to watch what he does because I covered his, the announcement that Trump was nominating him. And I thought it was really interesting because in 2011, he testified in a Senate hearing on the importance of civil liberties, especially for Muslim Americans. And outspokenness of that nature was surprising on the subject, given everything that has kind of happened on that topic. So who knows is is kind of, yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out, too, that, that um, you know, it will be hard to say, like, you know, let's say these cases do get settled, um, which would be a win for Silicon Valley um, in most respects. Um, a lot of these cases often do settle anyway. So it's hard to say, you know, kind of without being um, closely involved or knowing uh, the conversations behind the scenes and how those went, it's hard to say, like, kind of the reason why why these cases settle as they often do. That is true. Great. Well, I think that covers everything I wanted to ask you. Is there anything else that's happening out there that we need to know about? Um, no, I think the only other thing I would add and, and the sort of big thing that, that I'm personally um, really interested in following this year is is tax reform. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Historically, you've had uh, tech companies, you know, Google and Apple, um, Oracle, Intel, those are all good examples of essentially transferring their own intellectual property to foreign subsidiaries and then claiming that the income generated by that IP should be taxed in that country, um, which in many cases is lower than here in the U.S. And so that's one thing that I think tax reform will probably address and that a lot of companies out here are sort of talking about how it might affect them and just trying to get their head around. Well, Matt, this has been fascinating to hear the San Francisco perspective on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Maggie. And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at ForbesOnTrump at PodcastOne.com. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one... ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. A new smart home at your service, customized for your lifestyle. Set up custom automations unique to your home to automatically do the things like lock the doors or set the thermostat when you leave. Even close your garage door from virtually anywhere. ADT will set up your home with multiple smart home devices and security features like indoor and outdoor cameras, locks, lights, and garage door control, even video doorbells. Visit ADT.com slash podcasts to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.